Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18. We will be looking together at verses 8 through 11. Acts chapter 18, verses 8 through 11. When Paul arrived in the city of Corinth, he immediately set to support himself by working with his hands while waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. A married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, engaged in the same trade of tent making as Paul, and they offered him a place to stay in the city. When Paul's co-workers did come, they brought a financial gift from a church that Paul had previously planted, and this freed Paul up to, as verse 5 in chapter 18 indicates, devote himself completely to the word. However, when most of the Jews rejected the message that Jesus is the Messiah, Paul moved his ministry base of operations to a house right next door to the synagogue. And here a Gentile convert to Judaism allowed Paul to use his home as a gathering place to preach and to teach the gospel. And so we will pick up our reading this morning with Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, we observe in this passage, the proclamation, the proclamation. Even though he was no longer welcome in the synagogue, from Paul's new position next door, he still had considerable influence over the synagogue members. In fact, we read that the leader of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, believed in the Lord with all his household. Having sat in the synagogue and listened to Paul preach Sabbath day after Sabbath day, Crispus' heart melted. His conversion was no small deal. Uh, for, for the Jews to have lost their leader to what they considered a heretical and blasphemous sect was intolerable. They would, as we'll see, later in this chapter, seek their revenge on Paul. Not only was it Crispus who believed, but as had happened with the jailer in Philippi, Crispus' whole family also put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this must have encouraged Paul tremendously. From his ministry base, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, they continued to preach and to teach the word of God. What was the result? Look at verse 8. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. It is important to pause occasionally and remind ourselves what is happening when we consider a statement like this. God determined that people will be saved through hearing the gospel. That is what God determined. Paul would later write in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing 
by the word of Christ. The appointed means by which God saves his people is through his word, specifically the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves of that. There are many people, many people right here in our community who the Lord is preparing to respond to the gospel through the experiences that they've had, through the mistakes that they've made, through the sins they've committed, through the heartbreak and the loneliness that they felt, God is preparing and positioning them to respond. But the only way that anyone will come to a life-changing knowledge of the Lord Jesus is if someone tells them about what Jesus has done for them. Think about that. The creator of the universe has entrusted the message of life and death to you and me. The Lord lays all the groundwork. The Lord prepares the soil. The Lord goes before and comes behind. And the Lord actually raises the spiritually dead to life. But it is you and me who have the responsibility to open our mouths and be the agents through which God's word can go forth. The key to the power of the gospel, the key to free people from their sins, to transfer people from darkness to light, the key to deliver people from an eternity in hell is placed in the lock by the Lord. We must turn it. We must turn it. God, think about it, God could have decided just to open the heavens and, and speak proclaiming the gospel, doing it himself. But instead, he has entrusted that responsibility to every Christian. You are a Christian. If you are a Christian, because someone opened his or her mouth and spoke to you. Faith comes by hearing. You heard. You heard about Jesus specifically. And you trusted in his life, death, and resurrection. The appointed means has not changed. Do you want to see others saved? Your hand is on the key. Do you want to see this church grow? Your hand is on the key. Do you want to see your loved ones in heaven? Your hand is on the key. Do you care about the eternal souls of people all around you in this community. Your head is on the key. God will not do for you that which he has appointed for you to do. That is turn the key. And the amazing thing about this is, just like the Corinthians, when people hear some belief, if they don't hear, guess what? They don't believe. One of the reasons that some churches do not see growth is because the word of Christ is not going forth. I don't just mean from the pulpit, though that is the case in some churches. The gospel must go forth from the pulpit and from the lips of every Christian. My job is to proclaim over and over the good news of Jesus Christ. I do this 
so that you and me, that you and I will continually be reminded how the gospel meets our deepest needs in every season of life, in every circumstance. I also do this because there are those in every church, maybe even this one, who still need to hear in order to believe. They've heard, but they've not yet believed. The third reason that I proclaim so frequently the message of Jesus Christ is because my duty as your pastor is to equip you, as Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 read, He gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to the building up of the body of Christ. You are the saints, which simply means that you were set apart by God. And I am equipping you to know how to share the gospel. You collectively will run across many more people in a week than I ever will. In your workplaces, in your errand running, in your social circles. These are people already prepared by God to hear and to believe. God's gone before you. The key is in the lock, but God is waiting for you and me to turn it. They must hear. They must hear because faith only comes by hearing. Therefore, you must speak. The second thing that we observe from this passage is the vision. The vision. Vision such as one that Paul received in Corinth. They were not common. Paul received visions at critical periods in his ministry. They gave him guidance and they strengthened him for what lay ahead. When considering visions, we should be careful to guard against two extremes. One extreme is to dismiss visions altogether. Some Christians, they fall into this ditch. They're on that side of the road. And when it comes to visions, they're way over here. They say, and this is a little oversimplified, but they would say that visions are no longer given after the completion of the New Testament. Some pastors and teachers that I respect in many ways would say that visions are no longer given after the New Testament was completed. Visions ceased. That's a theory that's not backed up by Scripture. There's other Christians that fall into the other ditch, on the other side of the road, and they go to the other extreme. They teach that visions are frequently given. The visions are normative for the Christian experience. From what I see in the New Testament, visions were not frequent occurrences, but they did occur. Case in point, the passage we're looking at. The evidence of Scripture is that people did receive visions from time to time. I do not think we should discount visions altogether, but neither should we expect them frequently. The last time that we read about Paul receiving a vision was about two years earlier when he saw a man from Macedonia doing what? Beckoning to him to come over to that region. What did that vision accomplish? It accomplished the same thing that this vision in Corinth accomplished. It gave Paul guidance 
and it strengthened him. He was about to go into a brand new area, and the Lord made clear the direction to go in. He had been forbidden to go to Asia, forbidden to go to Bithynia, and so the vision said, come this way. The Lord knew what awaited Paul in that new region. Persecution. We've read about it. He would be run out of numerous cities. He would be beaten with rods. He would be stoned. The vision, a direct word from God, served to fortify Paul for what lay ahead. Therefore, if we understand that the purpose of a biblical New Testament vision, and by the way, we are still living in the New Testament period. We haven't gotten to Revelation yet. We'll know it when that happens. We're still living in the New Testament period. We're not still in the book of Acts, but we're still in the New Testament period. If we understand that the purpose of a biblical New Testament vision is to guide and to strengthen, then we will be able to consider the vision that Paul received in Corinth. So look with me at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. The phrase, do not be afraid any longer, is reminiscent of numerous times in the Old Testament where the Lord tells his people what? Do not fear. Do not fear. One of the many examples is Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Paul knew the scriptures. Paul knew the various places where God spoke to his people, telling them not to be afraid. There are two things that are remarkable about this command of Paul. First of all, in all of the places in the Old Testament where God tells his people not to fear, like in Isaiah 43.1 that I just read, it is God himself, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, Yahweh, he is the one who is speaking. But here in Acts 18.9, it is clearly Jesus Christ who is speaking. When the writers of the New Testament use the word Lord, when they use the word Lord, it refers to Jesus Christ. Paul knew this voice, the voice and the vision. It belonged to the same person who had spoken to him on the road to Damascus. So it is subtle but important to notice how this passage is confirmation that Luke, the writer of Acts, and Paul himself Consider Jesus' words of equal authority with the words of Yahweh. And that's consistent with Jesus' own statement in John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. <clears throat> the next, the next remarkable thing to note in verse 9 is that Paul was feeling fear. Paul was feeling fear. We know that because it would not make any sense for the Lord to say, do not be afraid any longer unless what? Unless Paul was actually afraid. And I point this out because it helps us to humanize the Apostle Paul. We tend to think of him as some sort of, some sort of super Christian, a man who was so godly that he rose above every petty feeling like fear. 
But that's obviously not the case. In Corinth, Paul was tempted to give in to fear. This is an encouragement for you and me. We are fearful of many things. We fear rejection. We fear suffering. We fear running out of money. We fear exposure, that is, people seeing us for who we really are. We fear the future. The bundle of fears that you have, they're unique to you, but fear itself is common to all of us. We serve a God who knows the future. We serve a God who has already demonstrated in Christ that nothing can separate us from his love. We serve a God who sought us and redeemed us and guarantees a secure and pleasurable inheritance. What was Paul afraid of? Verse 10 tells us. The promise that God made to Paul was a promise that was designed to counter Paul's fear. So if we know the promise, we know the fear. And God said in the vision, the Lord said in the vision, I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Paul felt abandoned. That's why the Lord said, I am with you. You and I, we often wonder where God is. We don't always sense that he is near. Sometimes our emotions or thoughts or circumstances leave us feeling like the Lord is hiding himself. Therefore, the promise is, I am with you. Paul was also afraid that he would be harmed. Now that's amazing. The Apostle Paul, the man who'd already physically suffered so much for Christ, the man who sang in prison, feet in stocks and blood on his back, this man was tempted to fear what man could do to him. And the fact is, man is capable of doing a lot. Paul still felt pain. Becoming a Christian does not make you immune to physical or emotional pain. Paul knew that the Jews in the synagogue considered him a blasphemer, which is a stonable offense. And now they're even angrier since their own leader has become a follower of Jesus. Paul also knew that apart from divine protection, he was not safe from the hands of the civil authorities. There was no one in the local or regional government who cared a whit for this foreigner in their city. They didn't care about Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen, but that would not keep a mob from attacking him, nor would the local civil authorities necessarily step in to protect him. The mighty Paul is human after all. And he felt fear. And so the Lord Jesus, in a night vision, says, do not be afraid. And Paul needed to hear that. You have the ability to regulate your fears. You can choose not to give in to fear. The person who, who jumps out of the foxhole and runs toward the enemy line, he's afraid. The one who cowers in the foxhole, refusing to get out, is also afraid. The difference is that one ignores his fear and does his duty. The second allows himself to be overcome by his fear. 
I'm not saying that you should run into danger. Sometimes that is merely foolishness and not bravery. My point is, is that true bravery is pressing on in spite of your fears. The courageous man is not fearless. The courageous woman is not fearless. He or she simply refuses to allow fear to consume them. Thirdly, in this passage, we see the promise. The promise. The Lord is telling Paul to keep a check on his fear. Now, the Lord never commands something that he will not give you the grace to obey. The Lord is not unfair. But this is not merely a command. The command is followed by a promise. And it is the promise that Paul must stand on in order to conquer his fear. The promises that are found in Scripture are what you and I must stand on in order to conquer our fears. The promise to Paul is twofold. First, as I noted earlier, it is the promise of God's presence. I think of the words of Psalm 118.6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The second promise flows out of the first. No man will attack you in order to harm you. In spite of what things may seem, in spite of how things may appear, in spite of how much Paul may be afraid, the promise of God is that God will protect him. What can man do to me? In Paul's situation, in this season, God promises to not allow any physical harm to befall Paul. This does not mean that Paul will never suffer again. It does not mean that man will never harm Paul again. It means that in this season, in Corinth, God will put a hedge of protection around Paul. There are promises given throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, and they are given to certain individuals at certain times. We need to exercise wisdom in applying the promises of Scripture to our own lives. They are applicable, but we need to be wise. Though every promise of God is trustworthy, not every promise will apply to you in your situation. First of all, you must consider a promise in its proper context. You must consider a promise in its proper context. What this will do is keep you from simply taking a promise of Scripture at random and applying it to your situation. Even Paul could not take this promise and apply it to every future situation in his own life. There was coming a time when he would be harmed by men. He is yet to be arrested. He is yet to be imprisoned. This promise is for Paul in Corinth in the years 51 and 52 A.D. A father might tell his daughter, if you behave while we have guests this evening, I will take you out for ice cream tomorrow. This is a promise. If the daughter behaves, the father will honor his word. and She can count on that. But the promise does not apply to every future scenario. The promise is not, every time you behave, I will take you out for ice cream. That might get expensive. It's contextual. 
The promise is based on this time and this place. And so what I'm saying is we must pay attention to the context of promises in Scripture. Some Christians, and maybe you know a Christian like this, get themselves into all sorts of trouble by lifting a promise from here and a promise from there and applying it to their specific situation. This is one of the problems with prosperity teachings, with teachers and preachers that lean heavy on prosperity messages. For example, I might read the promise given specifically to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, which reads, God says to Abraham, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Now having read that promise, I might then go and stand on a piece of property that I desire to possess. I might look in all directions and claim this promise for this particular acreage that I'm standing on. The problem, of course, is that the land is in Mississippi, not in Israel. And the promise was given to Abraham and his physical descendants, not to me and mine. Some Christians use promises of God like this. They ignore the context. And when the promise does not come to pass, they blame God. Or they think something is deficient in their own faith. It's not God's fault that you claim the promise out of context. And no amount of faith will give you what God has not intended for you. Consider promises in their specific context. First of all, having said that, however, we do not want to conclude that the promises found in the Bible are of no value. We do not want to come to that conclusion because they certainly are applicable to our lives. It is from the context that we learn how to apply a promise to our own lives. Once you establish the context, that is the where, the when, to whom the promise was given, that's the context. Once you establish that, you are then in a position to extract, to pull out the principle. This is not confusing, bear with me. This is the second point about applying promises of God to your own life. Determine the principle embedded in the promise. Determine the principle embedded in the promise. So here we go. What we've learned from verse 9, Acts chapter 18, is that we should not let the fear of man keep us from speaking up about the gospel to others. God said to Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent. When you are tempted to fear what others will think, or say about you because of your testimony for Jesus, you can claim the promise of verse 10 that God is with you. Even though the immediate context has to do with Paul in Corinth, the principle applies to any situation when you find yourself fearful of speaking up about the gospel. It applies to you. We all, to varying degrees, get nervous or anxious when it comes to speaking with others about Jesus. Even seasoned evangelists 
battle their nerves from time to time. But it is always God's will for you and me to share the gospel. You never have to question whether or not you should tell someone about Jesus. You should. You don't have to question that. Now, timing is important. And you should not try to force a conversation just for the sake of doing your duty as a Christian. My point is, is that you never have to wonder whether or not the gospel is applicable to the life of another person. It is. It is. And as we noted earlier, the Lord has given you the responsibility to proclaim the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Someone you know will only hear when you speak. Know the principle found in the promise. The principle here, the passage we're looking at, is this. Do not be afraid to speak up because God is with you. Understand the context, then discover the principle. Understand the context, then discover the principle. The context does not apply to your life, but the principle does. The principle does. So let us take this one step further to learn another point about God's promises. There was potential for Paul to be harmed for sharing the gospel in Corinth. That was a possibility. It had happened in other places. And so God gave Paul a specific promise for this specific city. No man will attack you to harm you, verse 10. That's pretty direct. God also gave Paul a reason for this promise. For I have many people in this city. There were a number of people in Corinth who had not yet believed, but they would. And God knew who they were. Paul did not yet know who they were. But we read that Paul settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul did not know who they were who would believe. Paul did know that as he continued to preach the word of Christ, that faith comes by hearing. As people heard the gospel, some would respond. Not all, but some. In order for Paul to have the time that he needed to preach so that the people God knew would all hear and respond, God promised to do what? To protect him from harm. This also implied that Paul would not be chased out of this city as had happened in previous places. In this, we see that God personalizes his promises. Hear that. God personalizes his promises. Because Paul had a job to do and God had people he intended to save because he knew they would believe, the Lord said, no man will harm you. In order for God to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes through Paul, the promise is personal. It's personal. In order for God to accomplish his purposes through you, he will personalize his promises to you. How does God do this? Glad you asked. It's through the Holy Spirit. And this is how it works. Whenever you read a promise... Understand the context, discern the principle, and then you are ready for the Lord to apply the promise to you. He may 
or may not do so, but you're ready if he does. How does this happen? This happens when you're reading scripture, you're reading your Bible, and a particular promise from God's word is suddenly and powerfully applicable to your situation. I know some of you have experienced this. This happens when you're praying about a certain matter and the verse containing a promise that perfectly fits your situation suddenly pops into your mind. What has God done? God has taken his written word and he has set your heart on fire. Years ago when I was in Belize, Patrick, my coworker, and I, we, we felt led to start a high school. The problem was, at least for me, was that I understood that operating a school would take a huge investment of time and energy on top of what we were already doing ministry-wise. As I prayed about these things, seeking to hear from the Lord, trying to find some confirmation, I was in the process of reading through 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. And I came across chapter 9, verse 8. And it exploded off of the page. This is what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So let's break this down. Consider this promise. The context of this passage in 2 Corinthians is Paul speaking about being a generous giver. It's buried within chapter 8 and chapter 9, both which are about giving, about stewardship. Paul is saying, is writing, if you give generously and cheerfully, then God will shower grace upon you by providing what you need. That's the all-sufficiency. God will also provide the cheerful giver with an abundance to continue in the good deeds that he or she is doing, including giving more. So that's the context. Material provision. You give, God will take care of you. But the principle, of course, the principle extends beyond the context. The principle extends beyond simply the material needs of you and others. If God gives grace to the cheerful and generous giver, then he also gives grace to meet any need of those who are doing his will. I felt like it was God's will to open up and operate a school in Belize in the village where we live. I felt like that was God's will. I also felt keenly my own lack of energy and equipping for such a calling. The principle of this promise in God's word told me that God is able to make all grace abound to me for this good deed. And that his abundance even extends to energy levels and equipping. So the next step, once I realized that the Holy Spirit had drawn my attention to this promise, was something the Lord did. He personalized his promise to me and to my situation. All that remained 
was for me to respond. How do you respond to the promises of God? I did not need to worry about whether or not I would have the strength and the endurance for the task. I simply needed to trust God's word. I needed to claim his promise. It had been given. It was there. What am I going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Promises of God are claimed in faith. You tell your daughter that you're going to pick her up from school. She is waiting there when you arrive. She did not take the bus home. Why not? Well, because she simply believed your promise and she waited expectantly. And that's what I did with God's promise about the school in Belize. God fulfilled that promise for the nearly three years that we operated that school. Allow God to personalize the promises of his word. Then respond in faith. Trust him. Trust him. The last thing I want us to notice about this passage in Acts chapter 18 is the yes. The yes. We find an instructive verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we find an instructive verse. Paul spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth. And after he left the city of Corinth, he would write at least two letters to the church, which we know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In the second letter, 2nd Corinthians, that Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 20, we read, For as many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. As many are the promises of God, in him, in Jesus, they are yes. I find it interesting that Paul received a specific promise from the Lord Jesus while in Corinth. Surely he shared this vision with his brothers and sisters, at least in time, you would think. And then when he later wrote a letter to them after he was gone, he spoke specifically about the promises of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you were to read your entire Bible, as some of you are doing, and you were to take note of all the promises of God, you would find that there are many, many, many of them. One biblical scholar, he decided to count them as he read through the Bible and make a note of them. And this is what he came up with. There are 7,487 promises of God to man in the Bible. Now, depending on how you count the promises, you might come up with a slightly different number, but God, God's promises to man in the Bible are somewhere around 7,500. God cannot lie. By his very nature, he always tells the truth. That means that every time God gives his word, he keeps it. Every time, without fail. And what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he takes this idea of God making promises and he writes what we understand already because we understand that God cannot lie. Because God cannot lie, every promise of God is yes. 
God never says no by going back on his word. But then Paul adds something extremely important when it comes to understanding God's promises. Every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that if you are a Christian, you have access to the promises of God. Jesus lived a perfect life. In fact, he lived the life that God expected you and me to live. Yet we failed to do so. Jesus died a death that he did not earn. In fact, you and I earned the death that he died. That's what sin brings, death. Jesus died in your place as your substitute to pay the penalty that you owe. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus then rose from the dead. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Jesus Christ is alive. He will never die again. And if you place your trust in Jesus, committing yourself wholly to him, his resurrection ensures that God will forgive you of your sins. God will also give you life, raising you from the dead so that you become a partaker of the very life of the risen Lord Jesus. That means if you are a Christian, you have access to God and to his promises. If you're not a Christian, the promises of God do not apply to you. You have no claim upon them. Secondly, that the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ means that every promise will come to pass. Every promise will come to pass. Just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, so every promise of God is guaranteed to blossom into life. That does not mean that every promise is fulfilled today. Remember, not to get too technical here, but remember God sits outside of time. <coughs> every promise is one big, simultaneous yes all the time to God. But to you and me who live within time, <coughs> who experience, have experienced the past, who are living in the present, who are looking toward a future, <coughs> we do not yet experience the fulfillment of every promise. There are many prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Each one of those prophecies is a promise of what God planned to do. And many of those prophecies, those promises, have already come to pass in Jesus' first coming. There are many promises that apply to your life right now, in the present. We find a lot of them in the epistles in the New Testament. They apply to you right now. They are yours to claim. If you're in Christ... The Lord will apply them to your life as you receive them. And there are many promises that are waiting for future fulfillment. That God will wipe away every tear is one of those. We don't experience that yet. But we will. 
The greatest, the greatest fulfilled promise of God was the sending of his son. In Jesus Christ, every promise finds its anchor point in him. Are you in Christ? Are you living in the presence of God because of the resurrection of Jesus? Do you have a claim on the promises of God? It is only in Jesus, it is only in Jesus Christ that God's word, God's promises will find fulfillment in your life. Are they accessible to you? God has made them accessible. But just as God's promises are received by faith, so is the Lord Jesus Christ. And before you can receive any of the promises of God, make sure that you've received Jesus. Because he's the one who opens the floodgates for all those promises to come pouring in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that you have promised so many things to us, to your children. Lord, that you are faithful to always keep your word. And that as we claim your promises, we can experience the abundant life that Jesus promised. So help us to do that, Father. Help us to see clearly in your word our inheritance that we may seize right now. And Lord, help us to claim all that you have for us. And we'll give you the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.